Welcome to What Book Hooked You, the podcast where we talk about the books that have played an important role in our lives. I'm Brock Shelley, and thanks for listening. In this episode, I talk to Jilly Ganyu, who is the author of the young adult novel Hashtag Famous. She's also written some comedy books with a partner, the Choose Your Own Mystery series. And Jilly and I talk a little bit about her journey as a writer and what books inspired her over that time. So take a listen. So, Jilly, what book hooked you? The most obvious answer for me would be the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, I was a pretty nerdy kid, and I loved fantasies in general and all of that. But I remember, I started with The Hobbit, but I remember opening the first page of Fellowship of the Rings and just diving super deep. And this was before there was Harry Potter. This is mm-hmm. before any of those things that even existed on the bookshelves. I was maybe like 10. And I just became obsessed with the world that this entire world could exist um, and feel so real and textured and full uh, and that I could spend so much time in it. So I'm one of those people who actually read the Silmarillion and liked it. Right. <laughs> I am a person, I could not go against Stephen Colbert and like stand my ground very well, but I could throw down some pretty deep cuts without rereading, I think. Uh, take issue with things about the movies that are not problematic at all as far as storytelling, mm-hmm. but, you know, purist that I am, I was like, oh, hey, you you, for, you forgot that there was no love story at that point. You got it wrong. So um, that would be the first and most important book that hooked me. And you were and you had these books read way before the first movie came out, right? Oh, yeah, I was I was maybe closing in on college. I was maybe end of high school or college, early college, one or the other. I don't remember when the movies came out and definitely went to midnight showings with friends. Um, as we had for Harry Potter and was the most invested person at those showings as far as the content matching up with the stories I remembered so well. So were you, what else were you reading during that time? Were you a big reader? Yeah. When I was a little kid, I was very much an indoor kid, like the consummate indoor kid. Um, and I, sort of tore through everything they had at my elementary school library that um, that was at my reading level. So I read all of the John Belair's books, which I think explains something about my sense of humor, which is rather perverse. I mean, the books were illustrated by Edward Gorey, even though they were meant for middle grade readers. And I'd gotten through all of those. I'd gotten through all of the other um, middle grade or upper middle grade chapter books that they had on the shelves. Um, I remember reading this book, Amy's Eyes, that I was so proud of because it was really long. Like it was 437 pages. And I'd read all of Roald Dahl and I'd gone through all of that. Um, and my parents were kind of of the wonderful blind eye persuasion uh, that any book is okay, as long as it's not like pornographic, as long as it's a book, it's okay. So my mom pointed those out to me when I was stuck with nothing to read. Um, she had this old box set with, I'm sure they were supposed to look like gilded pages, mm-hmm. but they were paperbacks and they were just yellow edged pages, um, that she let me dive into. And I re- probably reread them at least a dozen times since then. And so you so. were reading all over the place, not only like 
fantasy like uh, Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings stuff, but you were there were whatever you could get your hands on more or less. Yeah, it was it was very diverse reading diet. Some of the stuff I reread later and realized, oh my God, there there were things in this that luckily went right over my head. But mm. if you read Dead Eye Dick by Kurt Vonnegut at 12, like, uh, that's a little grim. Maybe I shouldn't be reading this. <laughs> or if my mom had some Pulitzer winning book that year and it was on the shelf and I showed any interest at all, I was allowed to read it. So I remember reading like Ursula Heggie, you know, 12 was its book stones from the river which is dark and intense and uh a book fall on their knees fall on fall on your knees when i was like 12 or 13 same thing i mean that book deals with extremely adult themes really really horrifying themes um but you know it was good writing and i wanted to read it and so it was on limits and so not only were you you know, reading a lot, but it, it sounds like you were reading what they say would be like well above grade level. So you were a pretty <laughs> smart cookie, I'm guessing. Uh, I, I guess so. I don't want to like be, you know, pat, pat myself on the back. I'm from the Midwest. We don't, we don't talk about ourselves that That's way. True. That's true. Um, I was very much a bookish kid. So even if I wasn't getting everything out of the books, as far as, you know, subtleties of themes and plot lines and if my mom got a lot of questions about what this word means um yeah i was definitely reading quote unquote above grade level from a really early age i also prided myself on it i wasn't ever going to be good at sports but i could be like the best at reading things you know (laughs) and so what then when you you know you were reading lord of the rings when you were uh, a kid and then once you got sort of this angsty teenager you know, you're reading some of the other things, but was there anything that you really grasp onto? I mean, obviously, you didn't have the Twilight series back then or, or things no, like that, but <laughs> was there anything maybe comparable or something you got into? Man, uh, you know, I remember getting probably my early teenage years getting really into all of the sort of tame um, romance element book so all of the Jane Austen all of the Bronte stuff that has nice happy endings and is considered respectable literature if your mom is buying it for you um but is really kind of fantasy and wish fulfillment as far as happy families go uh so I did that early teenage years I remember much to my sort of shame today I was probably 15 or so and I picked up my mom's copy of the Fountainhead Mm -hmm. and I was like oh my gosh I am so smart because I get what this book really means. Mm -hmm. Like, it's so subtle, right? Like, the book is a sledgehammer of of a philosophy I I do not happen to agree with. Uh, But at the time, just getting what she was trying to say felt like such an achievement that I was like, that's my favorite book. (laughs) Ayn Rand. And I reread it, like, just, like, two or three years later, not even, like, in adulthood, like, at 18, and I was like, holy crap, what was I thinking? <laughs> I was not very smart yet. <laughs> so that, I, I moved out of that phase quickly. <laughs> and so you were reading, you know, all these books all through kind of your childhood. Was there any time during that uh, young adulthood that you thought about becoming a writer? 
I would say that the certainty that I wanted to be a writer didn't hit until I was in college, my freshman year in college. I always thought I wanted to do something creative. Um, I thought I would be a visual artist. And then it took me a long time to realize I didn't have any skills or talent at that. <laughs> uh, so I got to college and there were creative writing courses and you had to try out for them because they were very limited enrollment. Um, there wasn't like a major or anything like that that you could do. And the first time I tried out was, I think, my sophomore year. I didn't realize they were around my freshman year. And I didn't get in. And it made me crazy. And so then it was, I think at that point, it was sort of set in stone. Like, this is the thing I'm going to pursue just relentlessly. Like, the failure to achieve right. it. I was a kid who did well in school. I loved, I loved gold stars. The failure to achieve this thing that I had set my mind to it guaranteed that was the only thing I ever wanted to do again. <laughs> and so what were you writing at first? What types of things? Oh gosh, utterly navel gazing, self-absorbed, right. you know, I'm so deep. I'm 18 kind of crap. <laughs> I didn't like, it's, it's the kind of stuff that is much more cringeworthy than opening an old diary is opening an old notebook where you thought mm -hmm. you were writing the kinds of things that are going to, to revolutionize literature as we know it. And in fact, it's, you know, it's training wheels and that's great. Everyone has to do that. And I had to get it out of my system. Um, I was writing what I thought was going to be for adults. I did not start with young adult writing. I didn't get there actually for years. Um, and it was, it was very self-consciously deep. <laughs> and so was, so when you first eventually, I assume, got into those courses, uh, you know, did you feel like you started to develop? You started to grow. Uh, what was kind of how did how did that you know once you finally achieved getting in those courses? Uh, was it a rude awakening at all? Um, critique was a rude awakening. Being in a room full of your peers and having to listen to them tell you what is wrong with what you're doing is very very hard. No matter how much experience you have at it. Uh, and it was the first time I'd been in that setting where I was really putting myself out there in front of people. And the the point of it was for them to tell me what I was doing wrong. But because they were so competitive, people were very willing to tell everyone what they were doing wrong. So it was not the kindest critique group to start in. Um, I would say that the most instructive moment was that the, there were only a few instructors of creative writing courses for fiction. And I got into one with a very respected writer and, uh, and I had a, you know, I, an okay experience. I wrote my stories. I got an okay grade and they had this sort of policy that if you ever wanted to return to the class, you were sort of open season at that point, you could come back and take it again if you wanted to, if you just decided you wanted an extra class in a semester and bump, bump somebody out of that spot, or you could just sit in on any given week. So when I was um, a senior, I had a friend in the same professor's writing course. And he asked if I would be willing to sit in during his critique because he was super nervous about it and I'd read the story with him and stuff. And I did. And the professor's suggestions for his story in those two years in between when I was in the class and when he was in the class, it became clear to me how wrong her suggestions were. They were so much about trying to make his story like what she did. Like that was the only way to write well was to write the way that she wrote. And his story, without going into like the details of why they were wrong, it was so immediately apparent to me like, oh my God, 
She doesn't know how to make his story better. She only knows how to make his story more like her. Hmm. And realizing that not everybody has something to offer your writing and that mm-hmm. not being good at writing doesn't mean being good at everything in writing was hugely revelatory. And then that same year, I was in a writing class with a different professor who's um, Amitav Ghosh. It's his name. He's really well known um, in India. And he re- he's super respected. But he was extremely good at looking at everyone's story and picking out what was great about what they were doing and emphasizing that. And it was the first time somebody told me, you know, thing that you do so well isn't be Hemingway or something. It's be you. And you should focus on writing what you do well, not what someone else told you is the way to be a good writer. Um, it took me a long time to actually process that into my writing, but it was it was really useful to see kind of what not to do and how not to improve. And then also to say, there's not one way to be a good writer. There's one way for you to be a good writer, and it means doing what you do well, not what someone told you is good writing, quote unquote. So, And so by senior year or after senior year, uh, what did you end up doing with your writing? So I just horrified my parents by getting my college degree and immediately saying, I am going to be a waitress so that I can write. <laughs> this was not, I was not one of those like unfortunate millennials who could not find a job. I was like, no, 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 no. I don't need one of your jobs. Right. <laughs> I'm going to write. And uh, I wrote a book and it was very navel gazy as well, but I was convinced that it was also a coming of age story that the world needed. And I went through that process of trying to find an agent, all that stuff, and nobody really wanted that book. Um, And eventually, I realized I had to move on from that story and write something else or else I was going to lose my mind, um, which ended up being essentially an eight or nine year process of me Mm -hmm. going through, I think, I wrote three books um, and like a sort of spec book that will put it on the side that never went anywhere. Um, And everything else that anyone would let me write. I started writing bakery reviews. I started writing um, self, you know, personal essays. Uh, I was, I would write randomly like for Bloomberg business week and report on some bizarre trend in the markets of dating. I, anything people would let me write, I wrote. Um, but I basically spent those years just writing all the time and not getting anywhere very obviously, but uh, it was, I guess, kind of like my own personal apprenticeship, learning how to write better. You know, you're getting all these writing jobs and they're obviously, you know, kind of all over the place. At what point did you feel that you sort of had developed your voice as a writer? You know, I don't feel like I confidently knew what my voice was until about seven or eight years in, like knowing the way I was trying to write. And it kind of took all of these random external factors that helped me realize that my voice was a much better fit for young adult than it was ever going to be for adult fiction or the adult fiction that was being published then. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a little bit more room in adult fiction now um, for a certain style of voiciness without being relegated to um, genre fiction. There's Mm -hmm. nothing wrong with genre fiction, but if you don't want to write 
a straight romance and you're very voicey, but you don't want to write chiclet and you're very voicey, adult fiction doesn't, it didn't used to have an idea of where sure. to put you. Um, but young adult allows you to be whatever you want to be. There's so much more room to, to, um, to explore both voice and, and emotion in a way that I don't think adult fiction wants you to. So my friend, uh, Jesse Andrews had published me and Earl and the dying girl. Mm -hmm. And I was at one of his readings and he was telling the, the crowd about his path to young adult. And it was like hearing someone tell my life story, except that someone was a dude that I knew. Right. <laughs> it was like, I wrote all of these books that were for adults and none of them were good or they weren't, people couldn't figure out where to put them. And someone finally said to me, why don't you try young adult? That was his story. And I was like, wait a second, maybe I have the same problem. Maybe I'm writing for the wrong audience this whole time. It's not that I'm writing wrong. It's that I didn't know who I was writing for. So then I started trying to write young adult. Um, and I think that my voice clicked into place there, not immediately, but like much, much more easily than it ever had for what I was writing for adults. And so those three books minus the spec, were they all adult focused books or did any of those, any of those YA books? So two of them were adult. Um, and like very, very self-consciously adult, like, oh, I have seven unreliable narrators, you know, mm -hmm. I have, I have, no, I only had two, but, <laughs> you know, and like people are murderers and all of this stuff, stuff that you can now kind of do in YA, but back right. then very much YA, maybe 2012, 2013. Um, and then there was one manuscript that was young adult, which helped me find my agent. And that was the one before hashtag famous. We didn't end up selling that, but that was when I was sort of figuring out how to young adult a little bit. Um, and it found me an agent. And though we did not sell it, it led me towards hashtag famous and the young adult books I am working on now. Excellent. So as you mentioned, hashtag famous uh, is your first YA book. And give me a brief synopsis of what the book's about. Uh, so hashtag famous is a two point of view story. It's told from the perspective of Rachel and Kyle um, who are on opposite sides of a photo that goes extremely viral. Rachel takes a picture of Kyle, a guy she has just a casual crush on at his job, posts on the internet, doesn't think anything of it because she has almost no followers, and overnight, he becomes the internet's new sensation. Um, anyone who has heard of the Alex from Target story will recognize that as an inspiration mm -hmm. point. This kid just became famous overnight. Um, but then in, in hashtag famous, you get to see both sides of that. And for Rachel, things quickly spin into like a ton of cyberbullying, pretty negative consequences. Um, Kyle becomes insta famous and then uh, circumstances bring them back towards one another and they have to figure out uh, whether they can navigate falling for each other in the spotlight. So was you mentioned that Alex from Famous kind of meme or trend that happened. Was that sort of the spark for this or the idea for this book? Absolutely. Yeah. Seeing this kid who just I mean, he really just worked at a Target store. He was such a normal kid with, you know, nice, normal parents and a regular life in Texas. Um, and the idea of not seeking out fame in any way and not expecting it and having it just sort of thrust upon you what that might be like if you're just a totally normal teenager was 
fascinating to me. You wake up one day and you have a million followers on the internet and you're just a guy who's good looking, you know, but high school good looking. You have a normal girlfriend. You're not in Hollywood. You're just a normal kid. Um, and then a couple of weeks after, they, they started running articles about him almost right away. But there was a New York Times profile uh, of him like a week or so after this had all happened. And they mentioned his girlfriend. And within, you know, almost the same amount of time that he was becoming famous, she was starting to get death threats for being his girlfriend mm-hmm. at a normal high school. And it was such a radically different reaction that they got. Um, also, no one really remembers the girl who took the picture. And like those circumstances all combined, and I thought it was really fascinating. It's sort of a cauldron of weird crud that when you add teenage emotions and the intensity of how you feel as a teenager to that, I thought it would be a really cool story. So what was, how did it all shake out timeline-wise that you had this book that got you an agent and that didn't go end up going anywhere. And and then were you at the same time writing hashtag famous? Did hashtag famous come after that book wasn't? It was clear that wasn't going anywhere. It was after that wasn't going anywhere. I was in rounds of revisions with my agent. Still, we weren't on, on submission yet. Um, it was in that stage of it still needs so much work. And this idea was so much more fun because I hadn't reworked it mm-hmm. like seven times already. Um, so I just sort of dove into it as soon as the opportunity, you know, knocked, the idea came to me. Um, and things moved with that one a lot more easily. It was a lot more fluid. I am hoping that maybe because I learned something about writing a YA book better during all of those revisions for a book that is now perhaps forever in a drawer. <laughs> <laughs> that all of that was meant to lead me to hashtag famous is like how I like to see it. (laughs) And so, but was there any problem from your agent? Did your agent sort of adopt that idea once you shared it with him or her this for hashtag famous? Cause they had originally taken you on for the, for the first book. Um, yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't a problem for me. I think that, um, I think my agent was as sick of the first book as I was right. at that point. <laughs> so this shiny, bright, new, fresh idea felt better for everybody involved. <laughs> but this, but hashtag famous watch your first YA book isn't your first published book. You also had two books for that are choose your own misery books. Do you yes. want to talk about those and what those are all about? Um, so the choose your own misery series is I, I, I sort of characterize it as my young adult writing is like the part of me that still feels hope and joy and, you know, good emotions. Mm-hmm. And the Choose Your Own's Misery series is like my cynical, awful adult self. <laughs> and they're totally separate things. Um, Choose Your Own Misery, I write with a co-writer, Mike McDonald, um, and they follow the format of those um, Choose Your Own Adventure books that we read when we were kids. You get to pick which chapter you're going to go to next. And all the chapters are really short and the story can unfold in a lot of different ways. Uh, But the initial idea for this was uh, adulthood is the worst Mm -hmm. and you don't get to have adventures. You just get to figure out which flavor of awful you want on any given day of the week. We were both at the time that we came up with this in really miserable office job. Actually, we were in jobs that made us very miserable. The jobs probably weren't that bad, 
we were very ill suited to our office jobs. And um, the idea that your life was really just sort of a series of choices that have no real effect on you and don't make your life any better or meaningfully different caught our mind. So uh, we, we started with the office and when we sold the office, they actually wanted to do it as a series. So then we got the chance to write more of them, uh, which was awesome. Uh, the third book is going to come out in 2018. It's dating. Is that, do you feel like when you're writing those with, since you're collaborating with someone, how does that work out? Are you all each kind of offering, cause it's a Chunyuro's adventure, each offering the different avenue or the different choice? Are you, how closely do you work together on that? And how closely is it separated out? So the Choose Your Own Misery books, the there's so much planning that goes into any Choose Your Path novel mm-hmm. uh, that the first thing we have to do always is figure out the architecture, like the, the structural underpinnings. We have these huge flowcharts that we make um, that, you know, this is the starting point. What are the two choices? And then we go down from there. Okay, choice one. What could happen and what might two choices be? So we spent, you know, like three or four months planning out essentially a very detailed outline of how we wanted the choices to thread out because you can't effectively start writing it if you don't know where you're going with a book like that. Um, So it would be everything from what sort of the general content of the scene would be uh, to what the choice was to like which jokes we thought we wanted to put in there. If we thought that this was the kind of place where we needed to, I don't know, have a sight gag or have a, a potty humor reference or something, we would put that in our outline. And all of that was done over Skype. We would just sit and have these long, hours-long meetings talking through what we thought would work best uh, and deciding, you know, telling each other. We wrote comedy together for ages before we wrote these books. And a lot of writing comedy with another person or I think probably writing comedy in general, if you mean for it to be funny, is being told it's not funny. (laughs) So a lot of the process was Mike and I saying, uh, well, what about this choice? And the other person would be like, that doesn't sound interesting or funny. <laughs> and so we would scrap it and keep going. Um, but most of the work was done together because it was this planning. And then once all of the planning was done, we would separately go and write. We would assign each other different things and then come back together and edit as a team, read them out to one another and edit to make sure that the voices matched and all of that. But it was a totally different process than writing fiction in a lot of ways because it wasn't about us getting our voices in. It was about us getting a consistent voice and it's about us making sure that the story architecture architecture made the most sense. And all of these things that um, I probably should bring to fiction and don't think about when I'm writing my young adult novels. But do you think because you've uh, written comedy um, and you said about how you have to, you know, have to strike down a lot of things when jokes aren't working or, uh, something isn't working. Do you think that ability to handle that criticism helped you when you're doing your YA on your own writing? Oh, absolutely. I think um, I think that having the ability to listen to criticism 
is one of the most difficult and most important things that you can do as a writer to like take in criticism from other people, not just let it hurt you, figure out how you can turn it to the better and make, make your work better because of it. Um, with comedy, that is always like a slap in the face, immediate thing. If this joke isn't funny. Try again. Uh, with fiction, it's a lot bigger picture stuff a lot of the time. But I think that one of the more difficult and more important things that gets you from being somebody who is writing stories to somebody who is um, getting ready to like hopefully put those stories out into the world is figuring out how to take in criticism and use it and not just get defensive and you know bristle every time someone tells you something isn't working well in your story. Mm-hmm. Now, do you think having grown up a big reader, uh, you know, we mentioned we start off with Lord of the Rings and, you know, you read all these other books, whatever you get your hand on. Would the teenage you like hashtag famous? Oh no. Teenage me would have been so deeply pretentious that she would have felt that hashtag famous by virtue of being written for me was beneath me. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's I, was, funny. I was at my most pretentious at about 18. <laughs> sure. All right. So a few questions sort of as we wrap up the first one being, what is your favorite movie that's based on a book? Oh, let me think about that for a second. Last of the Mohicans. Okay. I don't really like Last of the Mohicans, the book. Right. It's a little garbage and very racist. Um, but I adore that movie. I used to have the soundtrack on <laughs> CD and I would listen to the whole thing in my car and get a little weepy when I would imagine the moment when uh, her little sister is stepping off of the cliff. I was like, oh, this is when she sacrifices <laughs> herself. It is very intense. That's funny. Um, so yeah, not not a favorite book, but that movie right. is everything. <laughs> That's funny. So, what classic piece of literature? What you know, it's famous, it's well read, maybe well liked. Do you absolutely hate? Anna Karenina. I despise Tolstoy. I tried so hard, and I find it just utterly mind-numbingly boring. <laughs> I never read War and Peace because I hated Anna Karenina so much that I was like, I can't, I can't even try. I can't even try any more of Tolstoy's novels. Um, I didn't read it until I was in my mid-20s, and I think maybe I was past that early pretension mm-hmm. that got me through some of these, you know, big classic tomes that are more difficult than they are enjoyable. Right. <laughs> uh, but something about the structure of that book, that and Moby Dick, they're just, they're both so fleshy mm-hmm. and there are these whole parts of them that have nothing to do with the story. It's like, I'm going to spend a hundred pages learning about how farmers in the Caucasus blackball each other from more farming or something. I just wanted, <laughs> I wanted to burn the thing. I was so bored. Um, so I struggled my way through that and I will never, ever read it again. <laughs> Very good. All right, then last question, and to sort of cleanse the palate, what is the last great book that you read? I just finished Fangirl. I was way behind. I'd read other Rainbow Rowell books, but I had not read Fangirl, and I utterly adored it. Rainbow Rowell is one of my favorite writers in YA currently or ever. 
she's phenomenal. Um, and everything she touches, as far as I'm concerned, turns to gold. <laughs> so I just finished that like a week ago and it was everything I wanted it to be. It was the perfect summer book. It was just a page turner. Her characters are everything. Um, before that, if we want to do not just YA, uh, I reread one of the books I mentioned probably in passing earlier, Fall on Your Knees, which is a book from the mid-90s by a Canadian author, and it's a, a multi-generational family story, and it is there are extremely dark things that happen in it, but it is just beautifully wrought, uh, a really uh, incredibly crafted novel, and it makes me want to get better as an author to be able to someday do something maybe not exactly like that but that approaches that level of difficulty you know being able to pull off that kind of a story with that many layers uh that beautifully hmm. is something i continue to aspire to so that's great well jelly thanks so much for taking the time out and for sharing your story with us we appreciate it thank you so much for having me it was a lot of fun that does it for another episode of What Book Hooked You. Special thanks to Jilly Ganyu for joining me. Be sure to check out her books, Hashtag Famous and the Choose Your Own Misery series. I'm Brock Shelley. Thanks for listening. And until next time, keep reading.